The following message was recorded at Bethlehem Baptist Church in Minneapolis, Minnesota. More information can be found online at Bethlehem.Church. Well, let's pray as we go to the Lord for help. Father in heaven, help us to see your glorious plan for the church with eyes of faith. Help us to know our true and lasting identity in Jesus. Cause us to live out our collective calling as the church of Christ for our joy, for the good of this world, and for your ever-increasing glory. That's what we're longing for this morning. So would you do it by the power of your Holy Spirit? We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Rejection can often be a precursor to vindication. Consider a few of these stories. There was a boy born in 1879 in Germany. He was considered slow because he couldn't speak until he was four. He couldn't read until he was about seven. And he was rejected by the Zurich Polytechnic School because both his parents and the administrators and teachers thought he was unsocial and slow. Well, this boy went by the name of Albert Einstein and he ended up doing okay. Uh, He won the Nobel Prize in physics because of his theory of relativity. Or perhaps the story of Jan Canfield and Mark Victor Hansen. These are not household names probably for any of us. And they authored a anthology, a collection of short stories. And they brought it to publisher after publisher after publisher. And they were rejected one after another. They were actually rejected 144 times. I didn't even know 144 publishers existed. But they got that many number of rejections. On the 145th, they were finally published. And they sold 125 million copies of their series chicken soup for the soul. Or there was a young man working as a truck driver who tried out to be a vocalist in a local band. And after he tried out, he was rejected. And they told him, keep your day job because you're not going to make it in music. Well, this young man's name was Elvis Presley. And I think he ended up doing okay in the music industry. We love a good rags to riches story. We love a good rejection to vindication story. Why? Because this hero overcomes all of the obstacles and shows their brilliance, shows that they're the diamond in the rough. And yet, the reason we love these stories is because they're exceedingly rare. Most of the time, people just get rejection letters and they don't end up on the New York Times bestsellers. They don't win the Nobel Prize. They don't become an accomplished musician. These stories are loved because they're rare. Most of the time, rejection is the final note. Fairy tales all end with happily ever after, but they're fairy tales. And real life doesn't necessarily end that same way. And this is likely one of the thoughts that's plaguing Peter's readers right now. They're saying, we're on the margins of society. We've been rejected and scorned and maligned. And is rejection going to be the final note of our story? The culture doesn't like us. Society maligns us? And is this going to be the final note? 
And what Peter does is he transitions from the imperatives that he was giving in chapter 1, verse 13, to chapter 2, verse 3, which we've already looked at. Five imperatives of this is what it looks like to live out as a Christian. Now he transitions back to remind them of their identity and purpose. He says, don't lose sight of your identity and of your purpose. And the main point of our passage is that God is creating a people who are living stones like Jesus, who've been called to be a holy priesthood. Living stones to be a holy priesthood. And so what Peter's trying to do is build in in his readers this understanding. Yes, you've been born again to a living hope, You have an inheritance that's imperishable, undefiled, and unfading. You're being prepared for a salvation that's that's ready to be revealed in the final days. And yet, what do we do right now? What do we do? How do we live? What's our purpose? And so Peter's saying, let me give that to you. Life languishes without purpose. Joyevsky once wrote, the mystery of human existence lies not in just staying alive, but in finding something to live for. And that's what Peter's readers, Peter's audience are saying. We know that we have all this awaiting us on the other side, but what about right now? How do we live right now? What's our mission and purpose? And so Peter turns and tells them. We're going to look at verse 4, Jesus as the living stone, and then verse 5, believers as living stones. And in particular, three things about believers as living stones, that we're to be a spiritual house, to be a holy priesthood, and to offer spiritual sacrifices. And we're going to just walk right through this passage. So look with me at verse 4. It says, as you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious. So believers are to come to this living stone that was rejected, but is chosen and precious in the sight of God. And this living stone is no one else other than Jesus. And we see actually later in 1 Peter, verses 6 to 8, if you just scan down, we see there are three Old Testament quotes. They come from Psalm 118, 22 and 23, Psalm 8, or Isaiah 8. 14 and 15, and Isaiah 28, verse 16. And we're going to save those for next week. We're going to look at that next week. Why he goes to these three Old Testament passages as the foundation, as the ground for why Jesus is this cornerstone. But even this week, we can begin to see that Jesus himself declares that he is this stone. In Matthew 21, 42 to 44, it says this. Jesus said to them, have you never read in the scriptures, the stone that the builders has rejected has become the cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing and it is marvelous in our eyes. So Jesus himself is speaking here. He's quoting Psalm 118 to say that he is going to be rejected, but he's actually the ultimate cornerstone. And so the picture that Peter's painting for us is builders coming to a building. And in those days, they would have massive heaps of stones that have been brought in. There would be categorized in terms of size and what their function might be. And they could be, you know, wall stones and foundation stones and corner stones and capstones. And he, they would just all be stacked up and they would sort through them and, and they would reject some that wouldn't be fit for the purpose. 
Have you ever spent some time searching for sort of the perfect skipping stone? You want one that's flat and smooth and round, and you might keep looking and looking, and you pick up a stone, and you realize, ah, it's not a good one, and you toss it aside. That's the picture that we're getting. Our kids love to go to Michigan, and Michigan's known for Petoskey stones. These are fossilized coral as stones, and if you polish them up, they have beautiful hexagonal patterns. And our kids probably on a vacation spend 20, maybe 25 hours just searching for the perfect Petoskey stone. And I can buy one at the gift shop for about $6, but we spend 20 hours looking for the perfect stone. And that's a little bit of the image here that Peter's giving us. There's these massive heaps of stones and Jesus was cast aside. He was rejected because he was seen to be unfit. Not only was he rejected, he was crucified and killed. And now Jesus is this corner stone. This is actually confirmed by Peter himself. Turn in. Turn to Acts 4. I want us to see this together. Acts 4, verse 11 and 12. Peter, in a speech that he gives, also affirms Jesus as this cornerstone. This is a climactic moment where Peter and John have just been arrested. They had just preached and 5,000 men. So if you take women and children, probably 15 or 20,000 people had just believed in Jesus It's the birth of the early church in many ways. And now they've been dragged before the scribes and Pharisees and the high priestly family and Peter, fresh off denying Christ and then subsequently being restored. He now comes and stands up in this gathering with all of these religious leaders. And then we read Acts 4.11. This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. And so not only does Jesus say, I'm the rejected stone, I'm going to become this cornerstone. Peter now affirms it as well. And then we see also Paul does the same thing. Romans 9.32, he says, Because they did not pursue it by faith, but as if it were based on works, they have stumbled over the stumbling stone. As it is written, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. Or Ephesians 2.20, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. So what's the point of all this? The point is that Jesus is the one that has been rejected by men. Jesus himself says it. Peter affirms it. Paul has affirmed it. Jesus is the one who came to be the cornerstone in which everything else would be built upon. And he was rejected. He was rejected by the chief priests. He was rejected by the masses. He was even rejected by his family at times. Jesus was this rejected one. And yet he comes. And God himself, when he was baptized, rended the heavens and said, this is my what? Beloved son in whom I am well pleased. So even though everyone rejects Jesus, Jesus is the one that is chosen and precious in the sight of God. And the reason this matters for us this morning is that as believers, we too follow in Jesus' footsteps. We're to be rejected like him. 
And for many of us, when we come to Jesus, we think it'll be lined in fame and accolades and peace. And yes, some of those, like peace and comfort and faith and trust, come, but it also comes with rejection by the world, by the society, by family. And yet we will be vindicated like Christ. And the reason this is so vital for us to understand is because rejection for Peter's readers right now is attacking them right at the very core of their identity. The culture doesn't like us. The society around us doesn't like us. And we're being maligned and persecuted. And, and are we doing something wrong? Is this going the way that it should? Is this how the Christian life is designed? I thought we were supposed to rule and reign with Christ forever. And Peter's saying, yeah, yeah, you're you're on the right track. Follow in the footsteps of our Savior. He was a Savior that was rejected, but it doesn't mean that was his identity. It wasn't the final note because he's chosen and precious in the sight of God. In the same way, you too, if you're following Jesus, are chosen and precious in the sight of God. But I think this theme of rejection this theme of marginalization, this theme of being elect exiles, which we saw in chapter one, verse one, or aliens and sojourners. We have to recover an understanding about what this means for us. Because so often for us as North American Christians, we think we can marry American nationalism with Christianity. We think that Christianity is mainly about getting more power, more prestige, more influence in the political realm. And that can't be further from the truth. Christ and his kingdom does not depend on our president or Congress or Supreme Court justices or lobbying. Does God use them? Absolutely. But God doesn't need them. God can use a talking donkey if he needs And sometimes we would be better off with a really godly talking donkey, perhaps, I think. But our identity as God's people comes from our shared identity with Jesus. He was rejected and murdered. And then he was gloriously resurrected and vindicated by God. And that is our identity. Our identity is bound up with Jesus as this rejected but living stone, chosen and precious in his sight. And I think too often we get this all backwards. We think if only we would have more influence, more prestige, more fame, more accolades, more widespread acceptance, more winning of awards, good PR, public praise, that that's going to help God. God doesn't need our marketing to make him look great. He needs our obedience and faithfulness. And so as we come to him, we come as those who identify with Jesus, both as rejected and as chosen and precious So as Peter's readers say, is our suffering a sign that we're doing something wrong? Peter says, no, you're on the right pathway. You're following in the footsteps of our Savior. We have a rejected but resurrected Savior whom we serve. Now look with me at verse 5 as we transition into looking at the believers now as living stones. It says, you yourselves, as we come to Jesus, the living stone, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house 
to be a holy priesthood and to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. So in the same way that Jesus is the living stone, we now take after our Savior. We have this resemblance with Jesus, our older brother, and we too are living stones. And he says three things about us being living stones, that we're to be built into a spiritual house, to be a holy priesthood, and to offer spiritual sacrifices. So let's look at that first one, to be a spiritual house. What does that mean? Believers are the construction materials of God being built into a spiritual temple, a spiritual house. And so it makes us ask the question, what's a spiritual temple, a spiritual house used for? What's its purpose? Well, it's the place where God's presence dwells. And so he says to all believers now, you yourselves are being built up to be this glorious house where God's presence is going to dwell. God's presence is gonna dwell in and among his people. It's not gonna be in some building where you have to take a pilgrimage once a year or a few times a year in order to offer animal sacrifices, but instead you yourselves are now stones of this temple where God's presence dwells. And I think the thing we can see in this is, well, what is one of the chief characteristics of the temple? You know, if you read Exodus and Leviticus and Numbers and Deuteronomy and you get all these instructions about the tabernacle or later in, you, you read all the instructions about the temple, how it's to be built, how much gold, how much acacia wood, how much cedar and, and all the instructions to the priests of you can go in at this time and you can't come in at this time. And, and, and when you go in, you got to have done this and all that. What's the point of all of that about the temple? I think at least one of the main things is this, that it demands holiness. The temple demands holiness. You do not approach God without holiness because he's a fearsome God. He is holy. We are to be holy like our father is holy. And so that puts all of the imperatives that we saw before about our progressive sanctification, be holy, conduct yourselves with fear in a new light. It's not just about our personal sanctification process where we grow to look more like Jesus, but it's important for each one of us together as the body of Christ to increasingly be conformed to the image of God because this is where God's presence dwells with his people. We are to be transformed. How we love one another is not just icing on the cake, but it's foundational to how we relate to one another as God's building, as God's building blocks, as God's people. How we conduct ourselves with fear, how we put away sinful attitudes and actions. The other thing we ought to notice is that we're being built up into a single structure. This image takes aim at our individualistic, self-focused perspectives. So often we think still, I think, that if only I could get away from my family and my children and all the chaos around me and my staff, and I could just go up to the North Woods or the North Shore and have this isolated cabin and, and just have my Bible, then that would be a really spiritual thing to do, just multiple days of being alone. 
And the picture here is not mainly about individualism, but it's about this corporate building that God is constructing. Every single believer is a building block that is being constructed into the greatest, most stunning building in all of the world. We are God's house. Every believer no matter their race, background, socioeconomic standing is being built up into this house. It's going to be the most glorious building in all of the world. And it's going to be the biggest building in the world because we have the greatest architect and the greatest builder. It's going to put the Taj Mahal to shame or the tallest building in Dubai right now, 163 floors. It's going to make it look like a Lego creation in comparison. Or it's going to be more iconic than Notre Dame in Paris. More stunning than the Sydney Opera House or the Eiffel Tower. As we stand at the bottom of some of those buildings, like the Sears Tower, the, well, it's, they changed its name, the Willis Tower, uh, we think, wow, how glorious is man's creation. But we will be an instrumental part of the most glorious building in all of the world that will put every other building to shame because God is building for himself a people. A glorious people that's going to reflect his glory. This is a supernatural building that will radiate his glory to the world for his praise and honor. And so for Peter's readers, just put yourself in their mindset. We're maligned. We feel like the mice that are running along the alleys with no place in society. And he says, you are being built up. You are an instrumental piece of the glorious, most glorious building, construction project that will be ever seen on the face of this world. God's spiritual house, you are a part of it. And so that's where your identity should be found. Not in what the world around you says. Not even in what the the own voices in your head say. Not in what that one mean person in fifth grade said about you. Or whatever baggage you carry from a lifetime of people being mean and harsh and tearing you down. God says you are chosen and precious in my sight because you are a living stone with my son, Jesus. In the same way the heavens were rendered for Jesus, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. He sings over each and every single one of us this morning. We are his beloved children. And that should be our identity. If things get worse or things get better, it doesn't matter. Your identity is rooted in Christ. Second, he says you're to be a holy priesthood. A holy priesthood. So this is slightly a shift in analogy for Peter. Not only are you the building blocks of this building, now you transition to actually being the priests that serve within this building. This anticipates the language that he's going to use in chapter 2, verse 9, that you're a holy priesthood, a chosen race, a people set apart for God. But the point is that all believers now have access to God through Jesus Christ. If you'll remember the Old Testament, who could be a priest? Only the Levites. Only the Levites. You had to be born into that family. If you were born into another tribe, tough luck. Couldn't serve as a priest. Doesn't matter how much you went through, what you experienced, how much training you got. It was a birthright. And now he's saying, 
we have a new birthright. We have been born into the priestly caste. Each and every single believer has access to God's throne of grace. We can now come and access our Father. We have full, unfettered access to him. It's a little bit like when you... uh, get on an international flight, you know, you have 16 hours ahead of you and you're going to be shoulder to shoulder with someone. They're going to be leaning on you. This person on this side might fall asleep and start drooling on you. And now, nowadays, now we're stuck in this metal container going hundreds of miles in the sky, which is a coronavirus incubator, right? With all the recycled air cycling through. And, 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 but when you get on, you see those first 10 rows or so, everyone flying in first class. They get to lay down. They don't have anyone next to them. They get special silverware and and all of the privileges of paying more for their ticket. And that's a little bit what Peter is saying. You've all been upgraded into first class. It's not just the priests that could enter. It's not just the priests that go before God. Each and every single believer, from the littlest one to the oldest one, it doesn't matter from your intellect being of very little to of being very great. Every single believer has full, unfettered access to the Father because we have been called a holy priesthood before God. He's done it in Jesus. We've been set apart. Believers are living stones and we're a holy priesthood. And we're a holy priesthood, so what do priests do? Well, they offer sacrifices. And so that leads us to our third one. It says to offer sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Well, what spiritual sacrifices then does he mean? What things does he have in view? Well, I'm going to read four verses uh, from throughout the Bible that kind of point us in a direction. So Romans 12.1 says this. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. So our bodies can be a living, holy sacrifice. Philippians 4.18, Paul writes, I've received full payment and more. I am well supplied, having received from Epaphroditus the gifts you sent, a fragrant offering, a sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God. So if I can't, financial contributions are a pleasing, acceptable sacrifice. Hebrews 13, 15 and 16, it says, Through him, then let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God. That is the fruit of lips that acknowledge his name. Do not neglect to do good and to share what you have, for such sacrifices are pleasing to God. So we've seen Your body, financial contributions, now praise, doing good, generosity. And then 1 Peter 2, 9, your chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. For what reason? That you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. So there's this evangelistic praise that's also an acceptable sacrifice. So what's the point of all four of those verses? I was wrestling with this and I wanted when we got to the application section to say, you know, here are the five things that you can put into practice this week that can be acceptable sacrifices to the Lord. But I think the point that Peter's trying to make is not that. His point is trying to say, now that we have all been made priests, that the duties of priests 
which went from a narrow set of things, offering sacrifices in a very particular way, have been broadened so that every single believer, everything you do by faith in Jesus Christ, everything that you do by trusting in him, building your life upon this cornerstone, functioning as a living stone in God's body, putting off of sin, loving one another, and all of the other things that we do in our life can be an acceptable spiritual sacrifice to God. This is transformative to how we think. You don't need to be a vocational minister. It's not just if you're up here leading worship that God is pleased with you. It's not just when you're playing the keyboard on Sunday morning during those few hours where God is pleased. All of life can be pleasing to God because we're all priests who can bring spiritual sacrifices of our bodies in holiness, where we can praise God, where we can enjoy him in all the things that he gives us, where we can bring spiritual sacrifices acceptable to him. This is a game changer for believers. It's not just when you show up on Sunday, but it's all of life. It's Monday through Saturday, where you can honor, glorify, and praise him with your life. So, we are God's people called by him to be living stones, a holy priesthood, and to offer spiritual sacrifices. How do we then put all these things into place? How do we apply them? Well, first, we come to this living stone. The world does not value Jesus because they think he's entirely irrelevant to their problems. And for believers, we come to Jesus and we have to make a decision. Do we stumble over Jesus and all of that he has taught and all that he has said, or do we build our lives upon him? The function of a cornerstone is so that it would be the very first stone and everything else along this wall and the other and up would be aligned to this stone. And so are our lives built upon and aligned with Jesus in every single way? You can't be halfway aligned with Jesus. If you're even off by one degree, you'll end up in a different place after 100 miles or so. And so are we aligned? Have we built our lives upon this cornerstone? A verse like this, Peter is saying, as you come to him, Jesus, the living stone, rejected but chosen and precious. You are to come to him and build your life upon him as a living stone. And I know that there are unbelievers this morning watching, perhaps here this morning, who don't yet know Jesus. They don't know what to do with him. He says some really good things, and I like some of his ethics. And then there's other things that are confusing to me. And you have to make a decision. A line in the sand has been drawn. Will you stumble over the stone or you will believe in him? Surrendering your life to him. Confessing your sins, saying, I can't live my way. I don't want to be aligned to my own way of doing things. I want to be aligned to you and what you have called and commanded. And so we are called to come to this cornerstone and believe. And so for those who aren't sure this morning, will you stumble over this stone where we build your entire life upon him. And coming to this cornerstone will cost you everything. You will be rejected. I know many here in this room have been completely rejected by their families for following Jesus. 
There are some who will never see their family ever again because of following Jesus. We have neighbors and friends and co-workers that if they were to make a decision in trusting their souls to Jesus would be completely disowned by all of their extended family. They would lose their culture in many ways. They would lose extended family. They would lose so much of their identity. And Jesus says, I'm gonna give you a new identity, a new family. You're gonna be part of the greatest building project in all of the world. Do we believe in these things like that? Have we built our lives upon this cornerstone? The other thing I want to mention, another implication of this text, is that we do not exist on an island. We don't exist alone for ourselves. We're one of many vital and essential living stones that comprise this house. And I think it's important for us to see because in the midst of COVID-19 and people watching from home, it's exposed how connected are we to one another? Do we have a small group? Do we have a Sunday school? Are people calling us? Are people praying for us? Because the church is not mainly about coming to an event, but it's about people in relationship with one another, loving one another, caring for each other. We are living stones being built up together to care for one another. And so this is a call to get more connected. If you're not in a small group, we hope you will become this fall. Or church membership, we want every single member engaged in the life of this church. We're also all priests. We have free, full, and unfettered access to the throne of grace. And we, each one of us, as the priesthood of all believers, we would be abdicating our jobs. We would be failing our duties if we don't take full advantage of this full, free, unfettered access that we have. And so what is prayer? It's where you get to make full use of what God has given you. It's not this oppressive demand that you got to pray a certain number of minutes, but it's as the priesthood of God and with brokenness all around us in our own families, in our own hearts, in the lives of our children or in our grandchildren or in our world or in our city and state, we can come to our Savior and bring our requests to him because we have full unfettered access to him. I've been so encouraged in these last couple of weeks where a number of you have emailed me or shot me a note and said, we're praying for the pastoral staff at church. We're praying for you all to make wise decisions in days like this. And we need, and almost every reply I say, thank you. We need those prayers. Why? Because the church would not be the same without the full priesthood of believers. It's not just vocational ministry, each and every single one of us doing our part from loving those around us to praying so that we would be faithful as a church to what God has called us to. And so, as God's people, each one of us, as living stones, as a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices, everything we do by faith through Jesus Christ is acceptable and pleasing. So you need a purpose in your life. That's one of the things that I've seen. With all the protests, with, with lots of the anarchy, there's people longing for a purpose, longing for meaning. You see some of these 19-year-olds that probably haven't read a single book about any of the issues, but they join in because they just want to be part of something greater. 
And here, God is saying you can be part of the greatest construction project in all of the world. Everything you do has meaning when it's done by faith and through Jesus Christ. It's not just church activities. It's not just sharing the gospel. We glorify him in our thoughts, in our worship, in our longing and reading of scripture as we serve our families and love our spouse and raise our kids and wash the dishes and do laundry as we tend the garden and cook dinner and change diapers and enjoy fireworks this weekend or drink a nice ice cold cup of lemonade, we can give praise to God because we do it by faith, thanking him for his abundant blessings, seeing that we have been given the privilege of coming to him to offer spiritual sacrifices so that we might glorify God in all that we do. What is the most important thing? That we glorify God with our lives. And so priesthood has gone from a narrow set of specific activities in the temple to a broad range of activities for all of God's people to engage in because we have been given priesthood. And we're to build our life on this cornerstone and then to live for his glory. And the good news in the midst of it all is that though Christ was rejected, Though he was marginalized, though he was killed, God vindicated him. He was raised to new life. He was resurrected. He's now been seated at the right hand of the Father. So that at the name of Jesus, every knee would bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. And guess what? We're with him. We have been brought into union with Jesus. So no matter what rejection or marginalization that we might experience in this life, we will be resurrected with the risen Christ. We will be vindicated and we will surely be glorified forever and ever. And we will be part of the greatest project, the greatest construction project, the greatest house in all of the world that will declare his praise for generation after generation after generation. And that's what we get to be a part of this morning as God's people. And so don't lose sight of your identity. You are living stones with Jesus, rejected and chosen and precious. And you've been given a purpose to offer spiritual sacrifices, pleasing and acceptable to him. Let's pray. Father, we pray now that you would do that work in and through our hearts. We pray that you would draw some who've never made a decision about Jesus, that they would not be crushed by this stone, but that they would build their life upon this cornerstone. And we pray for each one of us as we have been called living stones, given a purpose to offer spiritual sacrifice, to function as this holy priesthood, I pray that we would now walk in a manner worthy of the gospel and of Christ Jesus. We pray all these things in your name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message from Bethlehem Baptist Church in Minneapolis, Minnesota. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for these copies or alter their content in any way without written permission from Bethlehem Baptist Church. For more information, we invite you to visit us online at Bethlehem.Church or write us at 720 13th Avenue South, Minneapolis, Minnesota, Five five four one five. Bethlehem Baptist Church, spreading a passion for the supremacy of God in all things, for the joy of all peoples, 
through Jesus Christ.